Today's episode of The Thriller Zone with David Temple is sponsored by The Story Factory and the visionary genre-bending debut novel Grand Theft AI by James Cox. The Matrix meets Blade Runner. Grand Theft AI is available now for pre-order from your favorite bookseller. Hello and welcome to The Thriller Zone. I'm your host, David Temple. Or should I say, I'm ordinarily your host, David Temple. (laughs) Because on today's show, I'm turning the tables and starting a new feature. I just thought it'd be kind of cool called Ask the Host. And my very first guest host is Chris Tetsy, acclaimed author, as you will see in just a couple of minutes. Um, I just thought it'd be neat. I'm always doing all the asking. I thought it'd be cool to turn the tables. So, how about you and I get into the Thriller Zone? This is going to be so much fun. I I wanted to make sure I started out of the gate by not feel I didn't want to come across like self-serving and like that. But I I just thought it would be neat. I spend my entire day or week researching and so forth and so on. And I what is that? Is that a, that looks like a Guinness or something? Oh, from your lips to God, that is a double espresso, uh, double Americano. Okay, in uh, a glass. Yeah, the reason I like this glass is that it's, it's insulated. Ins- it's insulated. I have one of those. I have one of those. We bought this really nice coffee machine. Um, I mean, <laughs> ridiculously nice because we drink so much coffee and we're trying to give up other things. And uh, <laughs> all right, so how how would we like to start this? So I'm going to ask you because you're the you're the guest host. Maybe it would be helpful to um ex- to put out there why why I should be interviewing you, like why okay. I'm someone you know, not just someone you pulled off the street or something. Um, right. So, folks, welcome to the Thriller Zone. With me today is Chris Tetsy, and Chris was on a earlier show. And uh, I was so impressed with not only her writing ability, but her interviewing ability and the way she listens and the way she thinks. And so I thought uh, I had this idea for a show called or an episode called Ask the Host, because I'm always asking all the questions. And I just thought, you know, it'd be kind of cool if somebody asked me a few questions. Uh, And I thought of Chris because... I don't know. It's just something that she's, uh, Chris, I'm talking as though you're not here. You're right there. Hi, Chris. <laughs> Hi, I'm right here. Many All the way across the country, but right here. <laughs> yeah. It's just the way, and it's funny because Tammy mentioned this too. Tammy came in after listening to the show. And she goes, boy, Chris is smart. She has such good questions and she's so on it. And I'm like, yeah, right. I thought, oh, Chris is going to be the perfect person for this. So how about this? How about you tell us some of your glorious accolades or a word you used earlier about bona fides? Bona fides. Bona fides. You know, it's funny. I always hate, uh, I do a podcast with a couple other women and we start off every um, episode introducing ourselves and like, hi, this is who I am. This is what I do. And it always makes me uncomfortable. So this time I thought, what would you say if you were a man? Men are never shy about saying who they are, what they've done. It just seems, it seems like a more comfortable and natural thing for a man to do. And it's not for me at all. So to, to establish why I think I can sit here and interview the author, David Temple, and the podcaster, David Temple, and the actor and director, David Temple, is 
Uh, let's go with the writing first. I have a master's degree in writing. I taught creative writing, screenwriting, playwriting. I was an adjunct English professor, so there's that stuff. Um, wow. I have three books, the first of which is included in a war fiction text, a text that studies war fiction, war movies, stuff like that. Um, so that was a surprise to me, but I kind of guess I know a little bit about writing, or at least I'm very interested in writing, and I love talking about it very much too much to a nerd kind of level. Um, I also was interested in screenwriting in college. I was always into fiction, but once I got into college, I got really into film. Um, I took a few film classes, history of film, stuff like that, and noticed I couldn't watch movies anymore without looking at lighting and camera angles and camera movement, and it was really very distracting. So was into that for a while. <laughs> and I've worked as a reporter, so I've interviewed some people. Um, and I currently do the occasional interview with writers and others in the publishing industry for Jane Friedman's website, janefriedman.com. So there's a lot of stuff I'm interested in, which makes me very interested in David because he has done everything. So I obviously have a lot of questions. That was so well done. And a uh, quick note about Jane Friedman. She is a wealth of knowledge. I don't know how I stumbled across her before I met you. And she's one of those folks that, and I love this about her, she gives so much of her knowledge away. Uh, this is one of the things I love about this community. She gives so much away that when she finally has a class that maybe she charges a very modest amount for, you're, you're happy to do that because you learn so much from her. As they say, without any further ado, shoot. Let's begin at the beginning, yeah. which is not what you should do in fiction, but I think we can do it here. Let's not go medias res quite yet. I want to know who you read as a kid because you're so into thrillers and mysteries and interviewing mystery writers um, that I just wonder if mysteries were something you were always into reading or if young David Temple growing up in a religious environment was reading different things. <laughs> Uh, first of all, yeah, that religious environment is a double-edged sword, um, which we can certainly dive as you wish, but I wasn't, uh, I think the things that I was always interested in and my, my writing and my desire to write came much later in life. I was always a reader. My mom was an insatiable reader. So our house was stacked with books and she was uh, always bringing books into the house and I would read, but I was always in, interested in anything that had the pages turning. Um, you know, even, even Huckleberry Finn, right? I mean, that far back, it was what's going to happen and how did he get him to help him paint the fence and, you know, bah, Tom Sawyer and all this stuff. So it was anything about activity. Um, I suppose very early on, it was history, John Smith and in America and all that. But it wasn't until I was deep into radio, which was my first love from a childhood when my voice changed. I'm like, that's what I want to do. But it wasn't until years later when I'd already had a prolific career that one day I'm working on satellite radio out in Los Angeles. And satellite radio is different than the satellite radio here today. It was uh, Westwood One Radio Network, Armed Forces Radio. So you had to do your show in a very generic way fashion because no one wanted to move that fourth curtain right that fourth wall so you had to speak very generically so hey 
Happy Thursday. Happy Friday. So-and-so's happening, but you couldn't say what time it was happening or where it was happening because you were, I was in like 138 markets. So your pitch is really, really ultra generic. So I would get bored because my attention span got challenged. So I'd run down the hall, pick up my, um, one of the secretaries, IBM Selectric, haul it down to the studio. And in between long sets, I would just sit there and bang out short stories because I would just, things would pop into my head and I would just, you know, bang out half a dozen pages and set it aside and go, I'll see what happens later. Wasn't until years later when that, that folder got to be about this size that I said, I think I'm going to try my hand at this. Maybe I can actually do it. And that was the very first gestation. What were you writing? It, it, it could have been anything from a, a, a passing idea, um, literally, literally, it, like I, I have friends who uh, will sit around and, you know, after a couple of cocktails, they'll say, okay, here you go. Here's 10 words, have nothing to do with anything, string them together in a story. And that's my, my idea of having fun. And I would oh sit there. Oh my God, that's totally fun. <laughs> yeah. And I would just sit there and rattle off this story on the top of my head, incorporating those 10 words. And I'm like, how long does it have to be? Well, it has to be at least a hundred words. Okay. And that's kind of how it started. So it'd be a random idea or I would, uh, you know, we'd have newspapers in the studio and I would see a headline. I'm like, what if instead of that happening to that guy in that situation, what if it was this situation and it was a woman and it was more tragic? <laughs> I would just start talking. Just anything to keep the juices going. Uh, you did, in fact, have an interview with your wife in 2021. I think it might have been June or something. I know it was a J month. I listened to it this morning um, and I enjoyed it. And one of the things you said in there um, is that there someone had told you, you know, that there's this this thing that goes around in the writing community. People are told to write what they know. And you used to think that was bunk because, well, whatever I want to, I like the exploration of learning what I don't know. I like the, you know, finding out new things and um, learning new stuff. But then after a series of conversations with different people, um, you got around to, I don't know if you're still working on this project, but there was an upcoming project that was um, centered maybe around a radio studio. And that was something you knew. And then you discovered, hey, it is kind of cool to write what you know. And I wonder if I agree with write what you know, because I think um, I think people disagree with it because it's misunderstood. They think, well, if I can't write what I know, then how am I supposed to write about outer space? How can you write, you know, speculative fiction or dystopian fiction if you're writing what you know? But I don't think that's what it means. I think it means take something you know well enough to be able to explore it on a level more intimately than anybody else could and where you can really um, have some insight into it and, and be honest about it with all of its dirtiness and all of its funniness. And I just wondered in writing this project, if you're still doing it, and I hope you are, what the difference was to you if you noticed the difference in, in writing this thing that you know very well as compared to writing, um, writing about people who had jobs you've never had. Like forensic psychologist or autopsy guy. You make a really good point. This thing about writing what you know, and I do, and correct me if I'm wrong, because I don't, I don't remember all of that conversation. Only because there's been so many conversations since then. Um, 
Did I reference meeting a producer in Hollywood and I was pitching a story at Thriller Fest? Yes. And he said, have you ever done this job? No. Have you, have you ever been a cop? No. Have you ever done anything in police work? No. Well, then I don't, you don't know what you're talking about in, in a way like, or, or other people are already doing it. And he's like, what do you do? What have you done? Write that. I was pitching The Poser, which was originally Seduction at Daybreak. And it was uh, Tony Eldridge who did uh, the series, The Equalizer. And, um, he, yeah, he went through that whole litany of, uh, so you've written, well, no. And, and it frustrated me because I'm like, and this is, there's two points I want to walk away with. One of them is if you're, if you're a writer, you're part of the beauty of it is that you're just making shit up. And that's, that's what I like about it. Right. And he said, well, let me ask you real quick, Dave, you know, what did you do? I'm like, well, in 25 years of radio morning shows all over the country. He goes, why don't you write about that? I'm like, who wants, who wants to hear that? He goes, I would, I'd buy that right now. And that floored me. To your second point, I did start it, um, but he and since I'm on your couch, Doctor Chris, it's interesting because as, as I've been writing it, I'm reliving so many stories that I just that I experienced in my 25 year career. And when do you have? I think this is a question everyone hates, but do you have a idea of when we will be able to access this story? By the end of the year is my goal. You are in a um, Hollywood state. You have been there for a while. You have directed a movie, filmed it, acted in it. Um, and then you have a couple other ones after that. Um, why not write a screenplay and pitch that to someone who you might know? That's a superb question. And um, I think because screenplay writing is uber specific. I lived in LA three different times and you, in my opinion, you have to be kind of in a circle or have a substantial track record or know someone who, you know, to really kind of make it because screenplays, it's, it's, that's a tough, tough business. I love writing screenplays. It's a, it's a, it's a fascinating method of creation, but boy, selling them is so, it's just so tough. And you're thinking about, you're talking specifically about this particular, we'll call it the radio guy idea. Is yeah. That what you're, yeah. Yeah, sure. Since um, it seems, it, it just struck me for a second that since you already had several chapters into one story, because I just hate the idea because fiction is just so, uh, I think it's harder than a screenplay because screenplay is basically just visual and dialogue. Um, I'm not saying it's easy. I'm saying it, it's less time consuming than a novel. And the interweaving of stuff into a novel is just so time consuming that it seems like even even if as a outline to see if it works to, to write the screenplay and, you know, just kind of knock that out and see how it goes. I will say this, and I mean this in all sincerity, I will certainly take this into consideration and uh, throw this idea around in my head because um, I, I love that idea. It. I love writing screenplays. I, I do like the fact that you can bang out a screenplay and probably, you know, some people can do it super fast. I could probably do it in about a month and a half, two months mm -hmm. versus, but versus a novel. I mean, the poser took me two years and posture took me a, another probably year. So yeah, there's a little piece of me that goes, 
it would be expeditious, that's for sure. And I'm trying to think, you know, you kind of got to have somebody, you got to have a connection and an inroad into Hollywood and say, hey, uh, Chris, I notice you that you're at uh, Warner Brothers now, you know, you got you, you know anybody I could push this around to? But here's the other thing. Hey, uh, oh, I like that screenplay. Who's your agent? But if you, if you, or what I don't understand about Hollywood is, first of all, I thought all you needed to have was an agent. And then I learned you needed to have a manager plus an agent, whatever. And plus knowing people. But if you're already talking to someone, if you have, if you have jumped those gatekeeping hurdles or managed to avoid them altogether, and you're sitting in front of somebody who can look in your screenplay, who cares who your agent is? Does that really matter? I thought the agents were to get to these people. No, I mean, that's a, that's a great point. And I guess maybe I just don't know the person to get in front of and say, hey, would you read this screenplay and tell me what you think? Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know that I don't I don't think you have to have an agent and a manager. I don't know that I terribly completely agree with that. But I do, I do know that it it is it is certainly help, helpful if you have an agent from the standpoint of they have the connections to like, for instance, I'm, I'm thinking of uh, Chris Hottie. Chris is, was a screenplay writer first and then a novelist. Now, he already has inroads uh, as a screenplay writer. He could, for instance, using him as an example, he could take one of his books, Storm Rising, which is the latest, and say, hmm, I think I'm going to adapt this to screenplay and probably turn around and get it into the hands of someone because he has built that relationship. He's in L.A. and he has those inroads and he has an agent. You know how you can't just go on to fill in the blank website and say, hey, author person, I have an idea for a story. What do you think? They won't. They won't take it. They won't listen to it because of these infringements. And, oh, they'll, you know, what if somebody thinks that, you know, you're going to sue me because I stole your idea. So, okay. but I like your idea and I, I'm certainly going to toss it around. There was a novel I was working on that started as a screenplay. Um, and it was, I hadn't done that before. I mean, I, I just felt like writing a screenplay. So I wrote, as, as, wrote it as a screenplay. And then later I started thinking, oh, that might make a cool book. And it was just nice to have, even if that could be considered a first draft and the novel is yet another first draft, but at least you have that that structure there. You, ha- you, you know whether the story works. One thing I also like about you is you don't, th- I don't, I think I've read somewhere that you said something about, yeah. it may have been about gatekeepers or having an agent or not an agent and self-publishing versus traditional publishing. You know, I'm talking to a lot of different authors nowadays. Uh, uh, Jeffrey mentioned this yesterday. He, you know, he was, uh, you know, he's a prolific writer, but I think he's doing some projects for Amazon. And you can you can have an agent deal in this direction, but you may go have your own self-published deal this way and that it's completely on your own terms. So I don't know now that the top six is the top, the big five is the big three, four big whatever it is today does that really matter um i don't know i'm st- i'm still up in the air about that um i'm certainly self-published now would it be cool and would it be sexy to have an agent and you know you're you're they have inroads and access that i don't yeah that'd be cool i have also talked to some authors who are not getting the uh they're getting the short end of the stick in that situation so i am also self-published and it's not like i wouldn't fantasize about being traditionally published but i have thought really really long and hard about why why do i want that why 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 and it really comes down to two things 
So number two is access. Um, if you're traditionally published, you have a better chance of maybe someone picking it up for a movie. I think two of my books would make really cool movies, but I can't get anyone to look at them. And you also are, have a better chance of being reviewed in some places uh, that won't look at self-published work. And I'm not talking about the New York Times because a very, very small fraction of traditionally published people get mentioned there anyway. So that's just like, that's lottery. But you do get better access to places. And then really the other stupid, stupid part is just so I can say, look, <laughs> and it's lame. It's really, really stupid and lame, but people, the people, like readers don't care. Readers do not care how you're published. They just want a good story. The people who care whether you're published are the people who are snobbier about it, <laughs> I guess. Well, I think we feel that we are, uh, we're, you know, vindicated or, or it's, we're justified or we're, you know, we're, um, what's the word I'm looking for? You know, Hey, yeah, I really am somebody, you know, I'm in the phone book. Yay. <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> that's a great movie. There's yeah. phone books here. There's phone books here. Yeah. You know, does that validate us? Does that make, I mean, if, if you write a great story, which you have, and, and we know that who have read your books, does it matter if somebody pushed it across the table to somebody and got a signature and now you're on the shelves of, you know, Barnes and Noble, et cetera. Um, and, and that's a whole nother conversation, whole nother boy who came up with that. That's a whole other conversation that when you walk into a Barnes and Noble, I don't, sometimes I say to myself, I'm not going in that store. And I love, I love bookstores, but because you, you, you face it and you go too much competition. How can I ever make it in this? Conversely, you just don't know who's going to like what, when or where. It's not like every book that is traditionally published is better than your book. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. um, that someone doesn't get traditionally published. Like uh, Andy Weir, his book was self-published. So the fact that it ended up traditionally published doesn't automatically doesn't automatically make the writing better. It doesn't it doesn't change the book at all. All it, all it does is uh, stamp it, you know, with some kind of approval. But there are a lot. Snooki had a book published by a major press. Trump had a book published by a major press. It doesn't being published by a traditional publisher doesn't necessarily mean the writing is exceptional, is all I'm saying. There well, are, of course, exceptional writers in there, but it doesn't. One doesn't automatically mean the other. I'm staring, Chris, at a stack of books that literally comes up to right here. Uh, this against the wall of the people that I've spoken to since we launched this show in June. And uh, there is a lot of fantastic talent out there. There are a couple in there that are traditionally published that I, um, I flat out couldn't get through for one reason or another. And we're certainly not naming any names. And I, I walked away, Chris going now, how did that get published? How did that person get that agent and get that deal? For that and that's the thing and so you see that that happens and then you think okay so would it really mean anything about me or my writing if i were to get that same stamp of approval and the answer of course has to be no because if if this can get there and you can also get you know you know what i mean it's not yeah. it's not like the barrier to entry is is marketability i think more than anything or what's popular right now what's going to sell right now who are you it's a conundrum so i know some people who have been uh, indie pressed and are not getting the attention they need or the cooperation that is required to get them to catapult to the level that they should. What does one do then when one has signed a multiple book deal? 
That happens at all size presses, though, too. I've interviewed people who have been with larger presses, and they say there was a, I was on some kind of Facebook forum, and somebody had been published traditionally by someone bigger than a big bigger than a small indie press, I think. And her book was showing up on um, must read lists and magazines and everything. And she said that, you know, all this great stuff is happening. And I think it was independent of the publisher. She said, all this great stuff is happening, but I still can't get, like, I can't get X or Y from my publisher, or I can't get this. And I think there is in large part, unless you're already somebody maybe, in large part, you are going to be responsible for a lot of your own marketing and a lot of your own publicity and well, now I'm hearing that from everyone. I mean, uh, I mean, from Jeffrey Deaver, only because he's the most recent, all the way down. And they and it goes something like, oh, yeah, you can't just sign the deal and kick back and go vacation in your Florida home and hope everything is going to get done for you. You got to be out there humping it and doing the book signing tours and the social media, et cetera. Um, I do think I went to a couple of seminars back a couple of years ago, Writer's Digest in L.A., Thriller Fest in New York. And there was this mindset of, oh, you've got to have a social platform and it's got to be rocking or you'll never make it. And I was even when I heard that, I'm like, mm, I don't know, man, if if Chris writes a great story and it just kicks ass and somebody picks it up, it doesn't really matter if she's got fifty nine thousand followers on Twitter. And that change, that thinking has changed actually since then. Um, but mm. I think the real underlying tone of that is that they want to know that you have the ability to get there and help push your product uh, as much as they will try to do the same. One hopes that the, that the balance is there and not, we just want someone who can basically sell themselves so that we can do something else so that we can focus on our, more, our, um, our bigger clients or, which is weird because you wouldn't think they would need any help. Like if you publish, publish somebody famous, I don't understand why a publishing house would have to do anything with them. But then I read recently that um, two famous musicians, uh, I don't know if Justin Bieber was one of them, but two people with enormous online followings like Instagram and everywhere had books come out and they did not sell well at all because those two didn't really do much to help promote yeah, I mean, so then you then that begs the question, was the product itself bad or was the fact that they didn't get out there and push it and do a lot of the heavy lifting that those around them didn't do or didn't want to do? I don't know. You know, going back to my radio career, the thing about, and this is the tough thing about the writing world versus the radio. If I'm on the show, if I'm on the radio in the morning at, at 6 a.m. and your alarm goes off, you're listening to it. I know I've got a captive audience and I do my job every single day the same way. And I try to always keep it sharp and moving. And you'll show up to an appearance and you'll get your T-shirt signed or whatever, la, la, la. You know, and the ratings continue to climb. So you always know, you have a barometer as to where you're going. The numbers are up, your show's good. The numbers climb, the show's good. Everybody likes you, the show's good. You go do concerts, introduce musicians, everyone loves you. Until that day when somebody says you suck, you're gone, right? Books, there's no, the barometer is... I don't know what the barometer is. I, you, you know, when I first started writing, I'm like, oh man, if I get some great reviews, I am somebody, they're, they're going to love me. And then you realize that, wow, I'm not getting any reviews. Am I not getting the reviews because I'm not asking enough people to do it? Or is they're not wanting to take the time to do it? Is the attention span getting shorter? I mean, it's... Reviews are really hard to get. Also, I think people read one book and they like it and then they think, oh, the next time this person's 
book comes out, I'll read it, but then time passes and they've moved on to someone else they're reading and then they just forget maybe, or the, the momentum isn't there. That's a really great point. And I was thinking about this just the other day. It, it almost makes you wonder, should I just sit down and crank out a stack and then just drip feed them so that I'm always kind of ahead? That's the way my brain thinks. I'm always mm -hmm. like, okay, well, let me, let me crank out a few, have one out there because it takes so much time and energy to promote that. And then you go, okay, well, while you're working on the next one over here, well, when this one kind of starts to wane, I'll, I'll put the next one in the uh, cycle. It's probably a good idea. I look at some of these folks, uh, I'm not going to be able to pull a name right away, that are writing romance, for instance. Because, And I spend so much time studying the market because I'm just a curious soul by nature. But there are some, Lucy Score, that's one that I have followed. Um, she cra She's writing a book like every other month. That's a prolific amount of material to get out there and her book sales are doing super good i'm like how does that even happen do you i don't know i'm i'm on the couch again speaking of writing one of the questions i wanted to ask you because we're talking about all the writers that are out there and um and you mentioned not wanting to hang out at barnes and noble because the competition is just overwhelming <laughs> you said in the interview with your wife that Part of the increasing competition is due to more and more people thinking they can write and more and more people having access to self-publishing and like there's just more stuff out there to choose from, um, which does create this bigger competition pool. And that made me think of uh, a comment I saw on a um, website like Vocal or Medium. Um, somebody was praising someone's writing and saying, oh, this person's writing is just fantastic. You have to read her stories. And someone commented, I don't know why there should be such an emphasis on writing. Uh, like, I just, you know, what about innovativeness of story? And what about the story, the story? Which made me also think of um, a person in a writer's group I used to be part of online who told a really good story, but the writing was, it was like the, the technical writing was not as good as the story. So I wonder, what is your opinion of what should be more important if there is a thing that should be more important uh just the story and remove the need for the word use to be good or the sentences to flow or uh characters to be complex does how important is writing in writing <laughs> you know writing versus story how do they weigh for you that's a really interesting question and um i'm thinking back and again without mentioning names tammy is a great person for um if i put a book in her hand and i say i i really enjoyed this book or maybe i said tell me what you think about this book so maybe i don't color it at all and i say here's the book read it and tell me what you think she has a really interesting way of going you know what and this is to your point chris you know, it was a good story. It was intriguing, but the style was awkward and it kept taking me out of the story. But but the story itself had just enough a hook that it pulled me in and took me along for the ride. And in the end, I enjoyed the story. But I, okay, great, cool. Would you read them again? Mm, I don't know, because again, it was, it was, it was either an awkward or the, the writing just wasn't all that fantastic. Uh, and this is coming from someone who read everything Ken Follett ever wrote. So it, that gives you an idea of 
you know, the caliber of material. I'm personally more intrigued by a great story and something that I haven't seen before or I haven't seen it done quite that way. I will let a lot of the other go. So I'm really intrigued by a unique story. And here's one I'm thinking of. Uh, the Chain by Adrian McKenty. Did you read that? Okay. Do you remember growing up, and I'm a little bit older than you, um, Chain Letters? Yeah. Do you remember? Okay. So he took the premise of the chain letter and crafted it around a parent's worst nightmare. That's all I'm going to say. And so you're, you're ripping through that book. It's really a good book. You know, if he, if he had degrees in writing, I don't care. If he went to such and such a school, I don't care. Does he have a master's degree in creating? I don't care. None of that matters to me. Um, I just want to find a story, escape into a world I haven't been before, and enjoy the ride. <laughs> no, that makes sense. I was thinking about the interesting connection between uh, a degree or not, or an education and uh, so-called education in writing, and whether that means anyone is any good at writing. Um, I can say, as someone who went for an MFA but only did it because I had no earthly idea what to do with a Bachelor of Arts degree, I seriously, I, I was freaking out having to do something, and I got lucky enough to get into the MFA program at the the school I was already a part of. So that was like, woohoo, safe for a couple more years before I have to go out there and figure out what to do. Yeah, I don't think MFAs teach anybody anything. I think it just, I, it doesn't teach you anything that maybe you couldn't learn from a writing group outside of a school. I think the value of an MFA program is you're with other people who are focused on writing, you're trading your work, you're critiquing the work, and in critiquing, you learn how to look at your own stuff more critically, you're, you're you're forced to revise. So you kind of get that ingrained in you. It's really just um, about the discipline more than anything else. So I just wanted to make a note of that. Like, especially since I mentioned that I have an MFA, I don't want it to be like, I have an MFA, therefore, you know, I'm good. That's not at all what I meant. <laughs> well, I, I have interviewed two gentlemen recently. And again, uh, it's so funny when I'm on the other end of this, show i have all the preparation and all my notes and everything in my head so i'm on this end and i'm kind of having to pull stuff so it's a little bit different for me but i'm trying to think i, I want to say it's either christopher swan or ted flanagan one of those two guys was going along the writing road and then they th thought geez i hope i don't screw this up they thought hey an mfa might help and then they saw a distinctive shift in their craftsmanship and i was intrigued by their craftsmanship because to me there's a couple of elements there's a great story like just a novel idea hasn't been done before or hasn't been done that way before and then there's and and the writing might be okay and then there's craftsmanship you know meg gardner is one of those that pops into my head just uh, uh, Pat Conroy, the way that they could craft a sentence that you would just stop and you'd go, and you'd read that sentence again, and you'd go, okay, now, where did that come from? The words are, I mean, it's just a, comp uh, a compilation of words on a page, but it's that craftsmanship that I really admire. I hope that's not talking out of both sides of my mouth. 
just a little. It's okay. I mean, you can admire a thing yeah. and not have it be the thing that matters. Yeah. Yeah. And and I wonder how much of the craftsmanship is actually. I don't know if that's learned in an MFA program because I remember being in a class with people who did write like that already. Um, like you don't learn how to pick and choose the right words to put in a really good order in the MFA program. But I think maybe what you do do is read more literary, like you read and discuss a lot of the minimalist writers, the literary writers, and you are asked to pay attention to how they did things and why, which I guess is, is part of the educational part of it. So if you're allowing yourself to be saturated with that and, and taking it, and if it's like already in you to be like, oh yeah, okay, so I, I see what they're doing there. I see how that's important. Maybe that's the kind of thing I'll look at when I'm writing. And then, and then you, that's only, you know, everyone has their different areas of interest in writing. I think, I think some writers go into it really enjoying that particular challenge and others go into it enjoying the challenge of crafting deep perfect suspenseful moment. You know what I mean? Yeah. And there's two, uh, two ideas that I want to run past you. My sister has a PhD in English. There's probably some other words in there too, but I mean, she is frigging brilliant. She's, she's a brilliant person and she, she loves literary fiction. I, I'm not smart enough to really probably enjoy it like she does. I have read some of the stuff that she really enjoys. It's not my cup of tea, but I admire it. I, I admire the craftsmanship. Now I grew up and you can take this however you meant it, uh, however you want to. Um, I, I'm meaning it in all the best ways. I knew that when I started toying with the idea of I want to, I want my next chapter of life to be a writer. Uh, I started reading everything I could get my hands on by James Patterson. Now, there's a lot of people who don't like James Patterson, but I love the way that he would, he had me ripping pages. They were short, they were concise. I was doing a lot of flying from one coast to the other back then, and I was just ripping through. I'd read a book that way, and I'd read another book going back. And I, I admired the craftsmanship of the expediency, right? So it was like watching a movie. Bang, 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 bang. And I like that. And I'm like, yeah, I, I think I could do that. So fast forward a couple of decades. And now I sit on a fence between, like, for instance, I love Don Winslow's work. But Don Winslow, I mean, you know, you, you got to carve out a couple of weeks or more to read a Don Winslow book, generally speaking, like the cartel series. Because it's so dense and deep and rich and wide and holy, you know, so you got to kind of carve out the time for that. Whereas James Patterson to me is kind of like eating potato chips, you know, chop, chop, chop. And you just want to keep going. So here's my biggest point. It gets into the conversation about, do you want to write commercial fiction or literary fiction? Do you want, do you want to be a craftsman? and spend a year or two or three or fill in the blank and and make this tome of just dun 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 and and that be it or do you want to go like me my attention span's only so short so i got plenty of ideas i just want to ping 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 you know and do commercial fiction and sell books i think you can go in the middle i mean there there is a middle ground you know there's because there is some literary fiction that you just that a lot of people complain about because you're you're like I know I'm supposed to like this but um I can't get through it you know what I mean and then there's 
very commercial fiction that maybe sometimes has has fewer layers to make it interesting also um and it's all about you know plot point plot point plot point very predictable whatever so you have two ends of the spectrum but you do have the in-between part where maybe you don't focus so hard on being crafty and literary maybe you tone that down a little bit but you do still explore uh things that go beyond the standard plot you know rise and denouement i think there's another thing uh, I, I really want to bring up, and that is, and this this goes back to your very some of your very first comments about um, what specifically is you want to write, and like for instance, all right, uh, when I wrote the poser, I wanted to dabble in mystery. I wanted to create a story that went that was had lots of little levels, and you had to figure something out by the end. Well, the sequel, you kind of knew you had the world built, so you knew that it was going to end one of two ways. Then I come along and I want to write Devour, a standalone about uh, <laughs> a cannibalistic prison warden. Then you have people go, I read that and it was so disturbing and it made me nervous and I, it was gruesome. That's great. What? That's great. Yeah. <laughs> so it goes back to this, you know, just writing what you know or writing what you have fun doing and it was a fun ride and a fun romp and it was fun to create these bizarre characters a lot of normalcy and then just some bizarre characters so here's my biggest point i found pleasure in crafting the story and you hope that Perhaps you, Chris, would like to read this story and enjoy it. But then what happens when you don't get reviews? or And are you not getting reviews because you're not spending enough money to advertise to let people know that it's out there? That's a whole other story. You almost said another. I did. <laughs> That's a whole other story, baby. That's the South in me coming out, you know? Um, one thing I want to ask before we run out of time, and but I hope you'll let me end with a couple of like, you know, those little fun questions you do at the end. I just have a couple of those. But before um, you mentioned in the interview with Tammy that it's in it's in the context of you talking about how you are uh, obsessed with learning what you can about things. And it started with your website, you, you know, way back when you were told it would cost three thousand dollars to make a website. And you were like, forget that. I'll figure out how to do it myself. You learned coding. Um, you've, you've done your own covers, you do your own formatting and you said that, you know, you have these daydreams about having a team with, with Tammy as like your right hand, your right hand woman, and just having a team of people, um, working on this stuff together, which made me wonder if you are at all interested in being a publisher of other people's mysteries or other people's whatever, like, would you, would you be interested since you like that, uh, control maybe? And you are, you seem like you would be an advocate. You are an advocate for writers, obviously, because you have them on your podcast. But would, would being a publisher appeal to you? Yet another great question. Yes, it would be, uh, because I think of some of the people that I have interviewed recently, and, and there's a couple people on the show, and I try to do a nice little balance. But I always have, and Tammy, she gets me about this all the time. I am the champion of the underdog. I love the underdog. I always root for the underdog almost invariably. And I want everybody to have a fighting chance. So back to your original question, 
a public being in a publishing situation would be cool because I know how the machine works now. I know talent when I see it. Um, does that answer your question? Uh, I think the answer is sure. Theoretically, that would be interesting, but nah. <laughs> That's what it sounds like to me. Because you're writing. I mean, you can't you can't write your own stuff if you're busy reading everybody else's stuff and publishing everybody else's stuff. I, I didn't know if that was like a question of like, hey, do you want to do you want to hang up your microphone and your headphones and and go do this? No, I don't want to do that. Uh, but if it's just a question, do you think you'd be good at it? Yeah, I think I'd be good at it. I also know this, and this is really kind of key, and it took me way too long to learn this in life. And I think it's because I've always been that guy that's doing 10 things at once. You can really only master one or two things at a time. And, and it's funny because Tammy and I have this conversation all the time. I love this podcast because it, it takes me back to my days of radio, which is what I wanted to do since I was a kid. Then it kind of begs the question, which do you like better, that or writing books? And I'm like, oh, it's, a, it's, it's kind of a coin toss. Like if you told me, fill in the blank, you can make this much money doing this or doing that, that's where it gets tough. Can you put them together? Um, because one of the things you mentioned also in that interview, and I know it sounds like that's that's the only source for my, that is basically my source material for this interview, but that's because you said so many good things. Um, you mentioned something in there about how also now, I mean, everybody pretty much has a podcast. I have a podcast, you have a podcast. Other people I know have podcasts, they're everywhere. However, most of them are podcasts where people are talking about their area of expertise, they're interviewing people, but what you don't really have is the old school radio uh, series, like a like a radio mystery, you know, that you have to tune in every whatever to get the next part of the story and where you have the creaking, you know, the, the somebody walking across the floor and the doors creaking open and all that really cool stuff and that da 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 to to indicate something's going to happen. I mean, have you can you put those two together? Have you thought about doing a kind of radio series? Hundred percent. It's so interesting that you're saying this because I have been talking to a couple of people about this. To blend my passions would be like this: like you know, early on that I took my first book and I turned it into a screenplay and then made a movie. Probably one of the highlights of my freaking life. There's nothing like having an idea, writing it down, and then however many years later, pulling back the curtains, looking at the screen, and there is your story. I mean, it, it doesn't get any better than that. So with this, you know, it, it feels like in one sense that it's, it's, that it's a step backwards to do radio dramas, but podcasts where a book is being reimagined is radio theater. Yeah. Like I, I just interviewed these guys for blood or justice a few weeks ago. So they took a graphic novel and made the graphic novel come to life. Well, I'm not tooting my horn here. I'm not taking anything away from those guys. I had that idea in 2005 when I wrote trailer trash vampires and I was hanging out with some actors who I said, Hey, come with me. And I'm going to make this podcast 2005. I'm going to take this story that I just wrote as a screenplay and turn it into a play. And you guys come play. So for me to look at this, however many years later, you do the math uh, and see this thing get uh, nominated for an award on Apple podcast is amazing. And I just thought about going in the booth here the other day and taking devour and turning that into 
basically that. And I'm like, well, I wonder if I could get Chris, for instance. Chris could play this part and Billy could play that part. And then, you know, in, in this Zoom world, we could basically orchestrate all this via Zoom and I could master record it and and see how it goes. So, yeah. Are you in? Will you play in the sandbox with me? I could try to pull it off. And if not, you know, fire me, no hard feelings. But I, I do like the idea. And yes, I do want to toy with that idea because it's all, I just want to always be stretching myself. I mean, you know, we only got so much time on the planet and there's so many things I want to do. So I really think it comes down to what can I do that, which is your exact point, that blends all my favorite things into one final product and if i if i can write a story and i can see it on tv or a film screen or i can write a story and hear it in my headphones as i walk my dog i'm a happy guy now i'd like to sell it and make some money but you know maybe after you win awards they turn it into something for netflix from your lips to god's ears <laughs> You know what? There is something I want to ask because I think, you know, talking about how thrilling it is to have your writing um, up on screen. So many writers would love to just be able to find actors, to, to, to raise money, to pay actors and buy whatever machinery is necessary to get a, a long high shot of a funeral, for example. How did you do that? How did you how did you just decide I'm going to make a movie and then raise the money and then find the actors? And how did you get it on Netflix and Amazon? Like, I don't know if this is something that would take a whole paper to explain, but if, if someone were coming to you and like shaking your jacket saying, please, Mr. Please just give me a few tips on how to do this myself. Cause I, I got this great story. I really want to tell it, you know, visually. I mean, how do you even, how do you even begin? Let me see if I can, I'll, I'll try to break it down into absolute beats without going too long at any given point. So here you go. Maybe 2009. I it, it was a point where I'm like, can I write a book? Do I know how to do that? I write the book. Oh, do I know how to do the cover? Do the cover. And learn all that system that Kindle and all that world can do. Can I self-publish it? Boom. By the way, side note, while, the, while time is transpiring, I'm writing and crafting little short films that I'm doing with a bunch of my pals in the backyard in Charlotte, North Carolina, who are, you know, they've all got other jobs and or they're actors and we're all just having fun. We're just creating shit because it's fun, right? I sit down one day and I go, hmm, I wonder if I could uh, write a screenplay. So I sit down and turn that into a screenplay. So a few years go by and a buddy of mine who is also dabbling in this world, but he, he wants to be a cinematographer. He wants to shoot the camera and get the image. And he said, let's, let's, let's do a project together. You know, you've been doing all these shorts. I said, okay, well, you know, what do you want to do? I've got two projects. I want to, if we're going to do something and I'm going to be doing a lot of the heavy lifting, I want to do one of my projects there. There you did. He said, oh, how about that one? I said, great. Discovering grace was the book. I said, great, let's do that one. All right. So we're going to have to get some money. He goes, oh, well, I, I don't know how to raise money. So you got to do that. How does anybody raise money for a film? You ask somebody who has a lot of money, who has money to spare. And that can take anywhere from a day to a year. Because one guy is going to say, hey, Chris, great idea. Who else have you got on board? How many other investors? Well, you're the first one. Yeah, Dave, about that. Why don't you go get one? And when you get one, come back and I'll be number two. So you do that for a while. And then once that momentum starts going and you have enough to kind of start it 
And this is the biggest key. I've spent 10 years hanging out with these guys, doing favors for them, and now it's time to cash in all my favor bank, right? Hey, listen, you got a camera and you got some equipment and I did this thing for you on the side and how about you helping me? So then you pull all those people together and you get a great crew. And then you go, okay, I got enough crew and I got just enough money to start the project. Well, I got locations because I got a friend who has a house and a friend who has a car, right? So you, you work with what you already have. And you go, well, okay, well, let's just start. And maybe some more money will come in. And that's how it started. And we started shooting. And then when people started seeing, oh, this is actually happening, they would write a check. Here you go. By the way, this movie may never make any money. That's okay. It's kind of fun. Y'all help you out. And then you get the thing done. And then it takes forever to edit, et cetera. And then you got to sell it. So then you find somebody somewhere who'll go, kind of like how our whole conversation started. Well, you do have a finished product here. And it's, I mean, it's not completely finished, but yeah, we'll take a look at it. And then you find somebody who will represent it and go, well, I have a connection at Netflix. So let me go throw it at them and see what they think. And they go, yeah, we'll, we'll buy it, buy it. You don't really actually buy it. And we'll put it on the air and see how it goes. And then if it gets any traction, we'll keep it on for a little bit longer. And that's kind of how, that's the very, that took me, gosh, five years I just gave you in about five minutes. What do you mean by they don't actually buy it? Like if something gets put on Netflix, what is it? Is it just an agreement or? Yeah, it's basically, there's, there's two kind of ways you can do it. They can go, oh, I like that. I buy it. What did it cost you to make it? We'll use that phrase. Uh, blank. Okay, we'll write you a check for that. Now we own it. Happy trails. Have a nice day. And then if the thing does nothing, they're only out what they spent. If it's a overnight sensation, Little Miss Sunshine goes kaboom. They have made off like a bandit. The in-between is uh, we will rent it from you. We'll give you a little bit of money and then see how it goes. That's kind of how the way we went. Um, it shaved years off of my life from some of the people I dealt with and some of the uh, challenges I ran into, but I wouldn't have, I wouldn't trade it for anything in the world. And I dedicated it to both my, now my late parents. And so it's an homage to them, you know. Are you ready to, to do your fun questions? My fun questions, but in the style of, well, a la David Temple. <laughs> Rapid fire question. Okay. My first is, what three people would you invite to dinner? Uh, let's just go with living. I don't want to do living or dead. You threw me when you went living or dead because I, I knew the very first person that... Because I just threw this conversation out to Tammy the other day. I said, man, if anyone ever asks me that, the very first person I'll say will be my father because he died way too soon and he would have loved Tammy. And he would have said to me, oh, you finally got it right. Um, <laughs> he was awesome. Clint Eastwood would be one. Clint Eastwood, I have admired since the Spaghetti Westerns. And I, I would love to ask him any number of questions. Don Winslow is a guy I have always admired, and um, he's he's always good for conversation, and he's chock full of stories, and he's got a whole lot of wisdom, too, the couple of times we've chatted. That would be number two. And number three, 
I think Hillary Clinton would be a hoot to sit down and just shoot the breeze with. As long as we didn't have to dive into all pure politics, I think it would be, I just, she's so smart and she's so opinionated and she's got so many fun ideas. I think she would be a hoot. Yeah. Um, did you see Get Back? And if you did, what was your favorite part? The Beatles documentary on Disney Plus, the like epic four days long Beatles documentary. Man, I'm going to disappoint you. I have not seen it yet. It is on my list of things to do. We've been killing Eve and we've been uh, hanging out with all creatures, great and small. And <laughs> fine. And then I feel like I just disappointed a parent. Well, and a little bit because it's just so good. And I wanted to tell you my favorite part. <laughs> I thought I had another fun one. Here's one thing. You left me a comment. Maybe it was a voicemail on my website, thethrillerzone.com. You made a comment about how you liked something that I did. It's like you're... Is it uh, your fantastic blend of humor and mystery? Yeah. <laughs> because I do like that. I really do. Your book just just pulls pulls you along and it's it's fun it's a, it's an interesting combination of fun and eerie and which one are you referring to I the don't poser know what the was like. yeah the poser was I the first so. one and the imposter is the second one that lots one. of lots of humor in that one yeah i had a lot of fun with that i like because you got to mix it up and and you got to have uh as uh, jeffrey deaver i said i loved it when he said something about you have to have characters that are really fully fleshed out and that are real if if they're cardboard or cut out then you tend to it's like when people say cliches and your ear just kind of glides over the cliche and you don't even really hear it because you've heard it a million times yeah they may as well not be speaking at that point would you you have to choose you you must choose you can't say well but you can be both you can either be um famous for your writing or like you can be just crazy famous movies and everything basically a superstar of writing or and just assume these things are different you can be known to be good at it all right just so i'm crystal clear i can either be a a really world famous super rich writer or b i can just be a good writer but i'm just gonna be uh wallowing in they'll mediocrity. study your fiction in universities after you die because it's so good oh oh okay <laughs> <laughs> oh okay all right so it's uh, i'm gonna either appear really shallow or really uh <laughs> i'm gonna go with he's really famous he makes a lot of money he's doing really good yeah he writes so he writes well yeah, I'm going to go that way. That's me. Yeah. There you go. Well, like you said, you know, we get this one life. So if it doesn't happen till after you're dead, who cares? You're not there for it. Because, Chris, here's the bottom line. I have had loads of money and I've had no money. And loads of money is a whole lot more fun. But it's the loads of money that gives you the freedom that I like more than anything else. I don't have to have lots of cars and lots of homes and all that stuff. And I've been around that. I've been around that with people I've worked with and for, and that is not as, as impressive to me as going, I love to give stuff away and I'd love to be able to just give oodles of cash away and do things for people without no, them knowing it. And I'd also like to be able to just know that 
I don't have to worry about anything. It's it's that's about and I want to be able to craft some stuff along the way, but I want you to like it. If you if I'm crafting stuff and you don't like it, well, that's no fun either. But that's not what you asked. No, but I get what you're saying. Yeah. And also, if you are that famous for your writing, then you're writing something people want, like really, really want to read and enjoy reading. And that's what matters. Okay. And I'm going to bring this back. So you liked The Poser, which is probably one of, it's one of the, my favorite things I've written because it is so, there's so much going on. There's so many really interesting characters and they've all got, they're very well-crafted characters, I think. But when people go, I really enjoyed that book. That's all I need. I'm mm -hmm. happy. I'm happy right there. This has been fun. It has been very fun. Thank you for agreeing to do it. Thank you for answering all my questions. Did you think I wouldn't? Um, I didn't know. I'm trying to think if there's anything here that I didn't ask. And there is one, but I don't. Ask it. People will say that you you can get to know a writer through their fiction, even if you know, because writers will always be, you know, say, no, it's fiction. There's nothing of me in there. These characters are all made up, but there's still a perspective that the writer is putting into the story. There are still personalities that come from somewhere. So my question would be, what would someone likely learn from you? What do you accidentally put into your fiction that is, is very you? Okay. It's, it's a coin with two sides on the poser, for instance, I wanted the reader to enjoy my uh, uh, maybe obtuse, but certainly obscure sense of humor, uh, especially when Pat Norelli. So therein lies another challenge is writing as a woman. And I've had a, I've had a number of people go, you know, what are you doing writing as a woman? You don't know anything that means to be a woman. I don't know. It's just something, another challenge. Okay. I'm just trying to rise to a challenge, move along. So there's that. And then on Devour, I have a really, this is just between you and me, right? A, <laughs> a really twisted dark side. I mean, I, there are, there is a part of me that probably somewhere could be a serial killer. Maybe. Right. Except like Dexter or like BTK? Except Dexter was fake. So let's wait, let's find another fake serial killer. BTK is way too scary. Um, so Dexter, like doing it for the good of all mankind or just people anger me and I think they should die. No, I would like to do it for all mankind. That's why yeah. I loved Dexter because it was, it was a murderous Robin hood. Mm. Now I don't think I have the stomach to do some of the things that I uh, portrayed in devour, but I certainly enjoyed creating that world. Now I don't know what that means. Doctor, what do you think? Oh, you haven't read it yet. You'd have to read it. No, I really have to read Devour. I, I must read about a cannibalistic prison warden. Yeah, and here's the funny thing. Uh, I do try to have a heart through everything. There is there is a good thread through every story. Even in even in the in the darkness, there yes. is a thread of good. Maybe the imposter. I mean that that guy was not good. But I mean, come on, isn't it fun to just create those worlds that you like? Well, I would never really live in that world, would I? Yes, it's, it's all the fun of being a writer. Or would I? <laughs> okay, last and final, I would like to hear voices. I want to hear Casey Kasem. I want to hear your everyday radio guy who's on Sirius XM and some maybe other radio personality you've heard who you just like to imitate. Well, Casey Kasem. Um, Ernie Anderson was always one of my favorites, you know, the, or Don LaFontaine, the guys who did 
in a world. Matter of fact, hang on one second. I think I might even have. In a world where music controls the day. Mix. Mix 92.5. And give your neighbors a reason to move. New Rock 107. If it's true and radio makes your brain work better, then we got enough music to make you a freaking genius. It's another half hour of today's best and most country on Thunder 99.5. Your new home for extra long sets of Albuquerque's best country mix. Hey, Frog 104. Ribbon. Blah, 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 blah. Talk 1120, 50,000 watts of talk, issues, news, sports, and sometimes the old-fashioned bitching, moaning, complaining. Roanoke's hit music station, K92. The Bay Area's home for 12 hits in a row. K101, San Francisco. You found us. A different kind See, of radio station. If I were you, I would just, I would do like three voiceover projects for national spots make a nice big salary and man i mean it would be so cool to just be a voice actor in demand are you a voice actor in demand i used to be uh i got off that trail when i moved to uh, san diego oddly enough i mean you have to be in new york or los angeles theoretically and i mean it really does help now this booth if i if it takes a time to generate that audience and get an agent, you know, where you really got the traction kind of like everything else. And then, yeah, I mean, I've got all the tools, as you can hear, that's a compilation of probably 10 years worth of work. Those are radio IDs, but there's other commercial, you know, commercial voices that I can do. And, but yeah, that's why audiobooks. I love audiobooks. I look forward to the uh, to the mystery, the, the David Temple Thriller Zone Theater Mystery Series podcast. <laughs> Don't call it that, though. <laughs> Again, it goes back to this right here is the culmination of all my favorite things. Talking to people, using my God-given talents, knowing technology, telling stories. I mean, it, it just doesn't get any better than this. The, the problem is this is this, the passion of all of this has swollen almost beyond the writing in one sense. So I'm every day, I'm just kind of like, Oh, what will I focus on today? You know, <laughs> I have nothing else for you. That's it. That's it. Those are all my questions. Well, can you give me a sign off? Will you do the official sign off for me? And I'll just kind of yeah, Ooh, a little pressure there on you. I'm gonna, I'm gonna step back here. This has been the Thriller Zone interview with Thriller Zone creator David Temple. I hope you enjoyed it. We both do, and thank you so much for listening and/or watching. Visit thethrillerzone.com. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know if the the was in there. <laughs> it is, and I'm gonna add a little question mark on the end when I put that on the scroll on the bottom of the page. <laughs> Dot dot dot. <laughs> oh, thank you so much for doing this. This was awesome. Thank you. It was fun. Thank you, Chris. That was a lot of fun. And it did feel a little bit different being on this side of the microphone. Anyway, I appreciate you taking the time out of your busy writing schedule to hang out with me and be the host on The Thriller Zone. I'm David Temple. I'll see you next time on another episode of The Thriller Zone.
The Thriller Zone has been presented by The Story Factory and the visionary genre-bending debut novel Grand Theft AI by James Cox. The Matrix meets Blade Runner. Grand Theft AI is available now for pre-order from your favorite bookseller.